you know, I have to ask a question with this being the first uh, first morning after changing to daylight savings time. Do we really gain an hour or do we lose an hour? Um, yeah, I know we lost, technically we lost an hour last night. And I was wearing multiple hats this morning and I realized we were losing, I was losing an hour of sleep on top of that. I was like, okay, that's exciting. But, but I think this week we're going to feel like we gained an hour. Aren't we? I think once we get over the morning adjustment, um, not having it be dark at 5.30, 6.30 and having that hour, it's, it's, I wish we would just stay on daylight savings time personally, but uh, I know there's been some move to do that, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. But, uh, but you know, that idea of gaining an hour, losing an hour, I think it relates well to our topic this morning. Uh, the idea of being a faithful steward or this theme of stewardship that we see throughout Scripture uh, that's not, the idea of a steward is something that's kind of new. I mean, like for, for most of the people in Jesus' day and in much of history, the idea of a steward made more sense because there were more kings and queens and stewards. The idea of a steward was the responsibility and authority was, was temporarily given to that steward to be able to handle things while the king was away. That's at the heart, historically, the idea of a steward. In the theme of stewardship, we see throughout Scripture in, in this idea that, that God entrusts to each one of his servants time, talents, resources, and, and all that God gives us, we, when we give our lives to him, the issue of stewardship is, is an act of our worship, of, of just being responsible and faithful with the resources that God has given us. Specifically, the resources he's given us and how we use them to make an impact for his kingdom. You heard some of those stories today in our brother's story about the, the impact of a Gideon New Testament or a Gideon Bible. That was someone was faithful in giving that Bible out to someone. Uh, many of you have been touched by people who were faithful in using a gift, whether it's a musician or a teacher or someone who was an encourager to you when you were struggling. That, I that issue of being a good steward ha can play out in a lot of different ways. It's sometimes, some of you, if you grew up in the church, as soon as you hear stewardship, you're thinking, oh, great, here comes the money and tithing message. That's part of stewardship, is taking the resources, financial resources God has given us and being faithful. And, and, I, and I, we just give God praise for the way I, I want to thank you as a church family. When we went into the last year, realizing the impact of the pandemic that we were not going to be passing an offering plate and the many Sundays we wouldn't even be gathering. Uh, there were some questions and concerns like, hey, what, does that, what does that mean financially for the church and in the sense of being able to support the ministries? And, and as if you were at the annual meeting, you know God used you and others to, to really bless and to care to where our giving was actually up last year. And so... I want to pause as we mentioned the issue of stewardship and the financial aspect of that. Say so you have been faithful, uh, and I and want to thank you for being used by God to be faithful in your giving. But stewardship is so much more than just money. It's again, it's our time, our talents, the abilities God has given us. Not only our natural abilities that we have at birth, but then the things that we're trained into doing, or the experiences we have, as well as our spiritual gifts that we receive when God's spirit fills us. We have, we have these gifts, we have these talents, we have these resources, and the question is, are we using them wisely? Are we using them effectively? Are we being faithful in using the resources God has given us? Typically, 
Um, we would look, I would typically, if I was going to talk on this topic, I would have normally gone to Matthew 25, but because we've been working through Luke in the Mission 119 readings, um, I'm, we're looking at Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. And, and I, even as I was reading and studying this text this week, I realized I'm much more familiar with the Matthew account of the parable of the talents. And, and to be honest, like preaching it, I'd much rather preach the Matthew account, the parable of the talents. Because there's some interesting, there's some things in this account that you're like, okay, man, that's harsh. I mean, and, and so, although there's some harsh language in the Matthew 25 account as well, but um, we're going we're gonna to dive into this text uh, as we, this is, if you've been reading through Mission 119, this would have been one of the passages you read recently. Uh, and so this is what, where we're at today and, and looking. And, and so this theme of stewardship is central. And, and yet what we find, what we see in this account is Luke, and this is important. If you've been listening to Reverend Soper, you know uh, that each of the gospel writers is gathering all the accounts and the stories of Jesus' teaching and his ministry. And, 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 and each of the gospel writers has a different take in, in what they're trying to communicate. Much like a preacher can, two, three preachers can look at the same biblical text and, and, and present it from a slightly different way. Each of the gospel writers are doing that. Gospel means good news. They're each telling the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But there's some unique aspects. And, and, and when you look at, if you take the time and go back to Matthew 25 and look at Luke, you're, especially when you look at Luke in context of the whole, the whole book, you can see that Luke... Dr. Luke is, is emphasizing some specific things, and especially as they approach Jerusalem. And, and so we're going to read, and I'm going to make just a few comments as we read, and then we're going to just unpack this a little bit today. But uh, Luke 19, 11 through 27, uh, this immediately follows Jesus' ministry to Zacchaeus and, and the declaration of, of Zac- that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' home. And, and it's sandwiched, this account is sandwiched between the Zacchaeus account and what we're going to celebrate in two weeks of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So the, there's anticipation, there's build-up happening of, is Jesus going to establish the kingdom? And that's central to Luke's understanding and what he presents. Verse 11 says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That first verse, even before we read the rest of the account, is, is Luke showing you why he's including this account in, the, in this place of, of, of telling us that this account of Jesus' parable is because of the buildup. It's, it's their geographical proximity to Jerusalem as well, and the growing anticipation that Jesus was going to go in and establish in force the kingdom of God. And, and, and Luke is, is setting this up, and, and you can see the theme, the theme of this throughout, of Jesus being the king who's entering into Jerusalem. You see this when you keep reading beyond Luke 19 and into Luke 20. You're going to see this account and realize that what Jesus does in Jerusalem is not exactly what the people were expecting. Because Jesus, rather than going in and establishing his kingdom in force, he began a long journey of his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven where Jesus, we celebrate as Christians that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is Lord, and we wait and we long for the return of Jesus, our King. 
That's a lot of comment for one verse, but this is, that's the setup here and putting this all in, in Luke's context of what he's saying. So there's definitely a parallel of, of, of what's going on in Jesus and his ministry and in the story that he's telling here. And he's weaving actually two stories together, two parables together in, this, in Luke's account. So verse 12, it says, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16, it says, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Verse 20 says, then another came. And we, we don't know what about the other, there's ten stewards in Luke's account. There are ten servants. We only get the report from three of them. But this third one is identified here in, in verse 19 and 20, or in 20, says, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at, at my coming, I might have, it, have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And, he, and they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. There's a little bit of a whiny kid in that comment. Like, but Lord, uh, why would you give it to the person who has 10? He already has more. Verse 26 says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I don't know about you, but I, don't, I doubt many of you have memorized, committed to memory verse 27. Um, that bring them here and slaughter them before me. I mean, it's a harsh story. Again, this is Jesus telling this story. And, and what, what's happening in this account is Luke, again, if you look at the other accounts in the other Gospels, Luke is taking, remember we talked, um, was it last week, talked about not being anxious? We, we, we understand that Luke, and when the different Gospel writers are sharing these accounts and these stories, these would have been things that Jesus taught many, many times. As he traveled from city to city, community to community, he had his stories and his parables and things that he would have shared. His teaching would have been something that would have been again and again reported. And, and so Luke here is, is presenting this and, and presenting this in this moment where Jesus is, is bringing together two different parables, things that he has shared different, separately at different times. He's brought these two together. And you, so you have the parable of the talents that you see in Matthew 25 
which is the primary point of faithfulness and stewardship. But then you have this other account, this other parable being brought in, and this idea of this nobleman who's traveling to a far country to be given authority to then come back and reign over the people where he lives. And, and so you have these two stories coming together, and, and it's, it's central to what is happening in the ministry of Jesus at this time. Jesus, having just called Zacchaeus into his kingdom, is on the edge of entering into Jerusalem. The anticipation is building. The, the disciples even are expecting that Jesus is going to go in and establish his kingdom in force. And yet what we see, as we read throughout the rest of the Luke, Luke's account, we see what Jesus' intention really was, was to go and to lay down his life, to give his life on the cross, to conquer death and rising three days, again, three days later, and, and then we, continuing in Luke's account in the book of Acts, ascending to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, in a very real way, is like this nobleman who's taking a journey. He's not going to establish his kingdom immediately. There's, there's going to be a season. He's preparing his servants for a season where he is going to be away. And it, it might be a long while that he is away the promise is he's going to be coming back and, and his servants need to be faithful with the work that he's entrusted for his servants to do. When I look at this account, I, I see and I think of these two parables being brought together. One of the first things I see, especially in this aspect of the nobleman going and, 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 and reign, or coming back with this authority and this kingdom to reign, is, is when we look at this account and when we really understand the issue of stewardship, the first issue at hand for all of us is are we accepting the reign of our king? Are, are we embracing Jesus as Lord? Are, are we living our lives and understanding that every resource that we have, every talent, all the time, every financial resource, everything that we have has been given to us on loan by God. And, and we'll have to give an account for all the resources that we have and what we've done for it with regard to God's kingdom. Choosing or to accept or reject the king that you see in this thread, the, the underlying thread of this one, one of the two parables that Luke is weaving together here, is this choice that we have to make of, of accepting or rejecting the king. And, and we see the, the troubling verses here in verse 14, after the nobleman goes to receive this authority, to then come back to reign as king. In verse 14 it says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now this would have been a familiar image for G those that were hearing Jesus. The, the reality is, again, remember, the Jews, were they... Were they autonomous? Were they reigning? Or did they have full reign at this time? Or were they under, again, throughout most, most of their history, were they under the reign of another power? Rome. There were all these different people that Rome had put in authority over Israel. And, and so there's an account here, and, and the people that would have been hearing this would have remembered multiple instances. History tells us there were multiple instances at this time where the Jews sent delegations to Caesar to protest the appointment of someone, some specific ruler over Judea. 
Specifically, uh, Josephus, the historian, actually writes that there was a specific delegation sent to Augustus to prote protest the rule of Archelaus. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. Archelaus is, was someone who was put over Judea. And, and so the Jewish people had actually sent and, and pleaded to Caesar to protest his reign. So this was Jesus, as he did in most of his parables, he used things that would have been familiar to the people and, and they would have understood this. They would have understood the idea of, of not wanting to accept the person that's been put over them to reign. But the larger picture you have through all of this is again, Jesus, the, the connection of Jesus to this nobleman and the accepting the reign of Christ Accepting Jesus truly as the Messiah, the Son of God. This is, this is again, is connecting with the, those of you that have been reading through Luke. This growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. Because they weren't accepting him. And in and, and moments after this account, and what we celebrate in two weeks on Palm Sunday, we know that the crowds are going to go from crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him. Choosing to accept the reign of our king is, is a central part of this story. And, and it also connects to that hard verse, that verse 27, the harsh words. It says, after, after this nobleman comes back, after this nobleman returns and, and rewards those who have been faithful with the minus that he had distributed and, and, and disciplining those or taking away the, the minus from the ones that had been unfaithful, we see through all of that, we see it also then the conclusion in verse 27 of, of dealing with the, that group that had gone to try to protest the reign of this king. Verse 27 says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Again, Jesus is using an image, a story that would have been familiar to his people. Any of the people that knew the story of the, those that went to protest Archelaus in his reign in Judea would know that when that appeal didn't, wasn't heard, that, that he coming back with the authority and the power that he had, he took care of those who protested him. And so he was known, uh, uh, this was something that they, they knew, that people were, those who spoke up weren't speaking any longer. Because they, this man had ruled harshly, and, and similar stories were told of Herod the Great, Great, who were appointed leaders that Rome put them in a place of, of authority to rule over the Jews. This is the way they treated their enemies. But in Jesus sharing this story, and again connecting Jesus to this nobleman who's, who's going on a long journey with the promise that he's going to return and reward his servants, we, we see a picture of theologians would call eschatology, of, of the picture of looking at the future, of, of, of the understanding that while Jesus is there and he's establishing his kingdom now, we understand that there's a part of God's kingdom that is still not yet. It's still to come. That we're not going to fully experience the kingdom of God until Jesus, our king, returns. There's two aspects of the eschatology that when we understand this future aspect of Jesus's ministry is one, Jesus is pointing to the not too near future or the pretty near future for his hearers was the destruction of Jerusalem. And on a couple occasions throughout Luke's gospel, he points to the fact that, that 
what they celebrate in the temple, it's going to be destroyed. And, and the things we know historically happened in AD 70 where, where, where Jerusalem was sacked by Rome. But there's also pointing to the final judgment. And when we read not only Luke, but read the whole of the New Testament, we know that there is a day coming that when Jesus comes and returns as king to fully establish his kingdom, there is a time of judgment on whether or not people accepted or rejected Christ. And there's a consequence. There's a consequence with that choice. It's a consequence of heaven or hell. Or do we embrace Jesus and the salvation that he gives, or do we deny him? Do we set him aside? Do we fail to embrace him? This account is reminding us of who Jesus is. And, 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 and I believe that the gospel writers, in, in thinking through everything that Jesus has taught, when the light came on after looking at the events of, of Holy Week and, and, and Jesus' being arrested and his, his suffering and his going to the cross and dying on the cross and then his rising again in three days and then his ascension into heaven and then the Holy Spirit came and fell at Pentecost, that Jesus' disciples began to start connecting the dots and remembering the things that Jesus said. And, and, and I believe that with the full picture of everything that Jesus did in Jerusalem in that week and, and in the days that followed with his, his resurrection and ascension into heaven. There's a constant, there's a reminder there for God's people that, that Jesus is going on a long journey, but he promised that he's coming back. And the question is, are we being faithful with what God has entrusted us to do? And, and that brings us to the central part of the stewardship part of the story. The parable of stewardship that is, that is highlighted, especially in Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. Uh, look at Luke 19.13. Because we see that the central task for God's servants, the noblemen's servants, their, their primary responsibility is to engage in business. Verse 13, it says, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. You know, I, over the years, I, I find when people that I talk to get obsessed about the end times in the sense of the details, I think in some ways we should all be obsessed about the end times. We should be living every day like Jesus could come today, that Jesus could come tomorrow. We need to live as if we believe that that reality of Jesus' return is a real reality and, and, and that we should be looking forward to Jesus' return, which Peter says is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is not even the rapture. Our blessed hope is the return of Christ and him making all things new. We need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus and his return, and it's one of the reasons I'm so comfortable in the alliance is that we understand all that Jesus has done for us and, and, and that he is Savior, he's Sanctifier, he's Healer, and he's Coming King. It's emphasizing all of the, the roles in which Jesus fulfills and in, 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 in all that he does for his people, or his believers, his children. But as Jesus goes, he, he's going and he's promised that he's going to return. He's given us a task. He's given us a task to go and to make disciples. He's given us a task to be a witness in our Jerusalem, Judea, the Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's given us work to do, and that's typically been my response to what people who I feel at times were getting too caught up in the details, trying to predict when Jesus is going to return. 
is say, spend a little less time and energy on all the charts and a little bit more emphasis on living each day for Jesus and proclaiming Jesus as Lord and inviting people to accept Christ as Lord into their life and be part of his kingdom. That's the work. That's the business that God's people are to be in, about and that we want to be doing, the work that we want to be doing when Jesus returns. We see in this account, again, on the, the, the second par parable that, that focuses more on stewardship and faithfulness, we see that there's a reward. There's a, there's a consequence for the, there's a reward for those who are faithful, and there's a consequence for those that are unfaithful. And let's just look at those verses again. Verses 16 through 17 says, The first servant came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Now think about it. He started with one. That's a, big, that's a big increase. If you can find a bank account that gives you that type of interest, you need to move your money to that bank account. And that's, a, that's a huge return. Verse 17, it says, And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Interesting, again, that the reward here is not necessarily more talents or money. The reward is more responsibility. And that's, a, that's something we see throughout Scripture in this issue of faithfulness and, and the reward. The, re, the reward for faithfulness that we see in this account and throughout Scripture is not a vacation. The reward for faithfulness is more responsibility. That God is going to look at the person who's been a faithful manager and say, look, I want this person in charge. I want this person to have more responsibility and to be doing more work. The second servant comes, verse 18 and 19, says the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Again, put in a place of more authority than others. Then the third servant comes, and here the story is not so positive. Verse 20 says, then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, that at my coming it might have collected it with interest? One of the things that really stands out here is, is not only is this servant unfaithful in the fact that he takes the resources that he's been given and he hides it. He goes and he, he hides it in a handkerchief. He doesn't do anything with it. And, and the response of the master is like, you could at least put it in the bank. Get that 2%, 0.002% or whatever interest that you get at the bank. You do something with it. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge for us is that when we look at our talents, our resources, our, our time, our, and all that we, God has given us, when we stand before God and have to give an account for our lives, are we going to be in a place where we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, as recorded in Matthew's story? Or are we going to realize just how much we wasted? How much time, energy? money, whatever resources we have that we wasted and then we didn't live our lives fully for God's kingdom. Another observation about this servant that I think is so critical, and this is consistent in the Matthew account as well, 
did you did you catch? And it's some question whether or not he's just using coming up with this description of the master's character as an excuse. There's some aspect he's doing that. But what I see very clearly is this man does not know his master's heart. And and there's something about those of us who would be faithful servants, faithful stewards, that we need to know our master, trust our master, trust his heart, and, and then do the work that he's called us to do. This idea, I mean, I believe in this account, it's it's not that this master or this nobleman is is not, um, I don't believe it's trying to paint him as cruel. I, I think the, the point here he, he makes very clearly is, is that he, takes the words of this servant and says, well, that's not who I, he's basically saying, that's not really who I am, but that's who you see I am, so that's how I'm going to deal with you. I think we need to look at our hearts and our lives and we deal with the issue of how we manage the resources God has given us, our time, our talents, our resources, and ask yourself, do we trust God? Do we have a picture of who God is that, that we are willing to lay down our lives because we trust him? This man had a, a picture of, of the nobleman that was was pretty harsh. The consequence and wrap up of this account, verse 24 through 26, it says, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That verse 26 would be a perfect example of how you can't take a verse out of Scripture and apply it somewhere else. The point of that principle in verse 26 is specifically to this issue of stewardship. A person who's faithful will be given more. The person who's unfaithful is not going to be entrusted with more. And, and we, again, we need to ask ourselves, are, are we living a faithful life? Are we embracing the role of being faithful stewards of the resources God has given us? When we look and we understand what Jesus has called us to do, I mean, it was very clear in this account that they were given a job to be about the master's business. They were to, specifically, to, the language is engage in business. And that raises the question of what's our business? If we've come to faith in Christ, we've accepted Jesus as our king, what is our business? What are, the, what are the things that we're really to be doing? And that brings us, I believe, to our, the great commission that, that God is through Christ is given to his children. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the task of making disciples to his servants. In Acts 1, 8, in Luke's account, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We have a task. We're to be faithful wherever we are, wherever, wherever God has you in your employment, your career, whatever stage of life you're in, whatever talents and resources you have or what you feel you don't have, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you have to offer, God wants us to lay down our lives, to give our lives, to be a part of making disciples and being witnesses for Christ in this world. Doing the work that God has called his church to do, engaging in the work of his kingdom until Jesus returns. 
our founder, A.B. Simpson, connected that, the idea of the, this gospel, Matthew 24, 13, I don't have this in my notes, I'm going by my memory, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Jesus, in those words, he, he connected doing the work to bringing in the return of Christ. We have a job to do. We have a responsibility, and we can look forward with faithfulness. We, we need to look at our lives, and I, I'm not, not going to look at it today, but 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, look at that passage if you want to go deeper today in the, today's message of just what we, how we build upon the foundation of Christ and what he's done for us. It's the same theme of reward for faithfulness for the work that God has given us. But I want to end with the, the words of Matthew's account because this is probably the part of the Matthew account that I like so much of these words because it's such a motivator. And again, Jesus used these stories in, in different places and uh, Matthew's account is, is including these words that when the master, that the master said to him, that those that were faithful, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. If you want a motivator for living the life that Christ has called us to, think about the, the promise of Jesus' return. Not only celebrate who Jesus is and all Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, celebrate all that Jesus has done for us and, 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 and then lay down our lives, embrace Jesus as Lord, but then live each day doing the work, the business that, that God has given the church to do of making disciples, being a witness for Christ, and doing that, waiting for the day of Jesus' return. And a day that we will stand before God, and I pray that all of us will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, the, your master. Whatever your job, whatever your career, if you've embrace the call to follow Christ. You have a responsibility. You have a task. You have a work to do that you're to be busy doing until Jesus returns. And I pray that we all will hear those words, well done, a good and faithful servant. You pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words this account, the story, and the, the reminder that we see throughout all of Jesus' teaching, the reminder that, that we are called to be faithful. Lord, that, that you invite us to embrace you, Jesus, as king over our lives. Lord, help us to, to every day to just live with the, the reality of that truth, that Jesus, that you are Lord. May we surrender everything to you, recognizing that our talents, our, our resources, our time, everything that we have, Lord, has been given to us by you, and, and you want us to use those things to make a difference for your kingdom. Help us to be faithful wherever we are and whatever our specific assignment in this life might be. May we be faithful to be faithful witnesses to you. And Lord, may we all live in such a way that, that when Jesus, when you return, that we will all be busy doing the work you've called us to do, and that we will all Lord, I pray that you would increase within our, each of our hearts and our, our lives, Lord, that longing to hear those words, well done, a good and faithful servant.